Now, I know that Infinity Wars just came out, so if you have seen it, no spoilers. Don't ruin it for the people around you, and especially not for me. Um, but <clears throat> this was, uh, you know, this was before this. It's about two years ago. And this scene, of course, is the beginning of Doctor Strange's story. As a successful surgeon who relies desperately on the precision of his hands, he, he has a terrible accident, essentially ruining his opportunity to continue his practice. But what we find out as you follow along is that this tragic event, this unfortunate suffering, is actually the event that propels Doctor Strange into his ultimate purpose. It enables him to find his place in the universe, to know what it is he was supposed to do, who it is he's supposed to be. And if it hadn't been for this event... He never would have found that. And this is true for a lot of stories. And it's true for a lot of the, the Marvel characters, of course. There, there are characters who hit these periods of suffering, have tragic events that happen that befall them, and they kind of have to persevere through them. And as they do, they discover something about themselves that they wouldn't have known otherwise. Or, or the suffering itself changes them in some significant way that enables them to become more than they were before to play a more significant role in the story. But it begins with suffering. And it's, of course, not just the Marvel stories. It's lots of different stories. These are, these are archetypal characters. These are pictures of <clears throat> the, the bigger story that all of us are a part of. A guy named Robert McKee uh, is kind of known for researching, exploring what it is that makes a good story. And McKee writes this. He says, the life energy of story pours out of the negative forces that thwart the will and desires of the characters. If these forces are weak and simple, then the protagonist and her story become drab and boring. But if these forces are amazingly powerful and cunningly complex, then she will have to rise to occasion and become a fascinating character with superb physical skills, iron willpower, and mental brilliance. It's these moments of suffering, these tragic events, that actually propel people into their place in the story, that, that make them heroes and heroines, persevering through suffering. All good stories have this. We're beginning a new series that we're calling Unseen. And in this, we're reading through a short book in the Old Testament called Ruth. It's named after kind of the main character in the story, Ruth. And all along in this story, one of the, the themes, or maybe the dominant theme, is the, the larger story that Ruth is a part of. That you don't actually get to see. There's kind of a surprise ending, and I don't want to give it away. There'll be hints at it throughout the next couple of weeks, but we'll try not to give too much away till you get to the end. But as this journey begins with tragedy, it ends in a way that no one could have ever expected. Because of the unseen hand of God throughout, woven throughout the narrative. Interestingly enough, what you'll notice as we go through this is that the characters will often talk about God. The narrator talks very little about God and God's role. 
But it's kind of the assumed underlying peace throughout the whole story. That the unseen creator is at work bringing something that no one would have ever seen, no one would have ever expected out of a tragic event. Well, before we jump back into the story that Tasha read for us this morning, a a quick reminder or maybe an update. Um, If you've been with us for a couple of weeks, you know that around, uh, for Easter, for Easter service, we did a responsive activity where many of us planted sunflower seeds as a kind of response to Jesus' parable about uh, seeds and how they represent his death and the life that he brings. And so I think there was about 77 or 80, somewhere in there, seeds planted. People took flowers home to nurture them and care for them. Some of you did that really well. Some of you left your seeds on the driveway um, or on the parking lot. And that's fine. We know that that happens. Um, but for those who, whose plants survived, uh, many of you brought them in. And we were going to plant them yesterday, but it was too wet. So we weren't able to do that. <clears throat> so, if you would like to join us in planting these, the rain date is actually tomorrow afternoon, uh, about 5.30 at Opportunity House. Uh, Julia Vantine Reichert is going to show up, and anybody who wants to come and help her plant these flowers, she'll be there at 5.30 tomorrow at Opportunity House. So, if you are interested with that, uh, I don't believe she's here this morning, grab me, and I'm happy to give you some more details on that, but we'd love to have you join us as we get those planted tomorrow. All right, so back into Ruth's story. So Ruth begins, the author, t- or the narrator tells us, in the time of Judges. Now that's important. It, it kind of places us in a particular time, in a particular place, gives us some context. Now if you're not familiar with the book of Judges, it's a fascinating book. It's, I keep trying to figure out how to do a sermon series on it, but it would be a really odd sermon series. Because it's kind of like the Wild West of the Bible. So the the book of Judges is written about the nation of Israel after they're they're led out of Egypt. They finally move into the promised land of Israel. They come in, they drive out a lot of their enemies, and they form this loose confederation of tribes. But there's no central leadership. And so people are kind of trying to figure their way out. And the one theme that gets repeated again and again in the book of Judges is this phrase. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. We see that phrase keep coming up. All the people did what, they, what, what seemed right in their own eyes. Now that might sound good on the surface, right? Like, well, that people were kind of guided by their own moral compass. Except when you start to think about what might happen if there's no kind of common framework for a moral, uh, moral system people just kind of make that up as they go along based on whatever suits their needs at the time. And so might makes right. Those who have power begin to wield it in a way that gets, is advantageous to them. Those who are, are poor and weak, they get marginalized and oppressed. There's all sorts of nasty, evil things that happen. Judges is not a pretty book. It's, it's actually a tragedy. It's a tragedy that illustrates what it looks like when people do whatever seems right in their own eyes. Maybe one of these days we'll do a series on it. I just got to figure out how to do that. There's some crazy stories in there. But this is, it's in the midst of this that we get this story. And it's in the midst of this that we meet Naomi. So Naomi is a woman who, uh, she, she's an Israelite. She marries, and there's a famine, we find out. So they move to Moab. 
Moab is not, I mean, it's kind of, it's, it's not a great area if you're an Israelite. So one of the things that happened, one of the issues that they faced during this time is there were lots of tribes around Israel who had just different belief systems, different gods that they worshipped. And some of these gods were kind of nasty. The Moabites worshipped this nasty god named Chemosh. I'm probably pronouncing that really wrong, but it doesn't matter. Most of you have probably never heard of that anyway. But it's, that's their god. And this god's kind of characterized by violence and bloodthirst. And so one of the ways in which they appeased the anger of this god was child sacrifice. And so this is kind of what these people are like. This is not a nice area. But desperate times call for desperate measures. And so there's a famine in the land. Naomi and her husband move into Moab with their two sons. While they're there, tragedy strikes. Her husband dies. But at least she still has her two adult sons, which in this culture would have been necessary for them because she would have had no ability to take care of herself. Her sons would have taken care of her. Her sons marry two Moabite women. But then, double tragedy. They die. So her husband's dead. Her sons are dead. All of this happens in the first five verses. This is the intro to the book. It's a tragic beginning for Naomi. And not only are these events tragic, but it puts her in a really tragic situation. As a widow with no children, no male children, she has no power. She has no ability to take care of herself. She has no... uh, she, She doesn't really exist in their culture. She's, for all intents and purposes, unseen. One scholar says this. He writes, Widows in the ancient Near East had lost all social status and generally were also without political and economic status. They would equate to the homeless in our American society. Typically, they had no male protector and were therefore economically dependent on society at large. So she's just, she's helpless. And she has these two young women now, her daughters-in-law, and she does the respectable thing. She encourages them to go back to their home and to find some men to marry. Of course they should do that. And Orpah is the first daughter we kind of see respond. And, and she initially responds like, no, 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 I won't do that. But then, you know, her, her, her mother-in-law actually theologically makes a case where, look, God is against me. You should go and make a life for yourself. And so she goes. She does. And it's easy, before we get to Ruth, to look at this and say, okay, well, she, she made the bad choice, Ruth made the good choice. And that might be true, but Orpah also made the choice that I probably would have made, that you probably would have made. I mean, unless you're really different than me. Because I regularly make choices that are more about what's comfortable than what's good. Maybe you're, maybe you're different than I am. But for me, I, I often, you know, pass the person on the highway who's broken down, and it's, it's like a mile later that I have the thought, should I have stopped to see if they needed a hand? Ah, I'm busy. They've surely got a cell phone. Or maybe you don't do this, but I definitely sometimes get in groups of people that I don't know, and lose myself in my phone, 
rather than making eye contact with people and communicating something about their humanity. It's just easier, right? Like, that's awkward to have a conversation with someone I don't know. So I'm going to look at my phone. Or maybe you don't, but I often, when things don't go well, think about whose fault it might be other than my own and look for ways to cast blame, to point the finger so that I can feel a little better about myself. I mean, we could go on and on. But the choice to do what's comfortable over what's good, the, the path of least resistance, is the one that we often take. We rarely face it in such dramatic, kind of stark contrasts. But we do face it daily. Will we do what's good or will we do what's easy? And the easy thing often wins. But then there's Ruth. Ruth knows that living in Israel is not going to be easy for her. As a, as a pagan, someone from the outside who, who doesn't, doesn't know the ways of Israel, she's already coming in disadvantaged. I mean, she's, she's a widow. She's been married before. She's pagan. She has no social connection, no social standing. She's taking a big risk. She literally sacrifices her life for her mother-in-law. Now, not that she risks death, that probably wouldn't have happened, but the life she could have made for herself, finding a husband, having kids, building a life in the home that she knows, she gives that all away to stick with her mother-in-law. And this radical act of compassion, of self-giving love, is what propels the story forward. It's what allows her to find her place. And what we come to find is God's ultimate plan of redemption in the world. And that's what's fascinating here. Is Orpah makes the choice that most of us make and she disappears forever. We never hear about her again. Because there's nothing particularly compelling about doing the thing that's comfortable. Making the choice that is easy is boring. I mean, we do it every day, multiple times a day, but it's not, it's not particularly interesting. But someone who would choose the thing that puts them at risk because it's good, because it's right, because it's what ought to be done, that's compelling. That's interesting. That we want to listen to. That's Ruth. Ruth chooses not to move past suffering or away from suffering, but to move into suffering, to embrace it. And in so doing, she sets, sets off a chain of events that move God's redemptive story forward. And I think this is really important for us because we often see suffering as like antithetical to what God might be doing in our life. Anytime we think about, if you think about this kind of thing, what God might be do up to, we usually associate that with 
good feelings, things that are good, things going our way, life working out the way that we want it to. That's generally how we think this thing ought to go. That if, if God is with me, if I am with God, things will move along swimmingly. Isn't that kind of the point, right? My life to go easily? But this isn't what we see in Ruth. It's the opposite, right? That it's the choice to move into suffering, to embrace it because there's something more important than being comfortable that actually finds her right in the middle of what God is doing in the world. Now, I'm not saying, and I think this is an important distinction, I'm not saying that in this story, God causes the suffering of Naomi to move the story forward. Honestly, Ruth is kind of silent about that. I mean, Naomi's not. Naomi pretty clearly thinks God is to blame for this. If you listen to her as as Tasha read through chapter 1, she makes no bones about saying, God is the one who has done this to me. In fact, she... You know, she, she goes around and she's like, you know, don't call me Naomi anymore because Naomi means pleasant, right? So she says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. You know what Mara means? It means bitter. Because, because of what the Lord has done to me, just call me bitter. Let's just all, I mean, we all know. Everybody sees it. This is where we are. So Naomi's not pulling any punches. She's not your pious, like, only say nice things person. She's like, this this is where we are, and God has done this to me. But interestingly enough, the narrator neither confirms or denies this. We just kind of watch the story transpire. And maybe we're left to wonder, is God causing her suffering? Where is God at in this? What is God really up to? In fact, that creates some of the tension of the story, right? What is, is God even there? Is God at work at all? And if so, How? What is going to happen here? And as we come to this, obviously it's a, it's a longer story, and because we're doing a chapter at a time, I don't, I don't want to give too much away about how we see God at work. But as we come in to the front end and we begin to think about what it looks like to enter into suffering ourselves, we do that from a particular lens. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, we understand what God is like and what God is doing in this story through the lens of who Jesus is and what it is that Jesus is up to, how Jesus shows us that God functions in the world. And when we look to Jesus, we find that God is not one who causes suffering. God is one who actually enters into suffering with us and in the process brings life for us and through us for others. I want to read something that Jesus said to his followers, his disciples, in Mark chapter 8. Verse 34, Jesus says, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. Jesus' invitation to follow him was an invitation into suffering into losing the life that you want to hold on to, the life of comfort, the life of the, the, the easy way for the sake of following him 
ultimately to death. But as we do that, Jesus brings life in us and through us to others. In fact, the way to find life is as we follow Jesus into suffering. The New Testament author and half-brother of Jesus, James, reflects on this when he writes this in James chapter 1, verses 2 to 3. It says, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. James says that suffering is an opportunity. An opportunity for us to experience growth. Suffering isn't something to be avoided, but something to be entered into in hope that the one who suffers with us can bring life, meaning, resurrection, even in the midst of our suffering. James sees suffering as an opportunity for hope an opportunity to move through and find something that we never would have expected if we're able to endure. This is Ruth. This is Ruth's story. This is the example that she gives for us. Enduring through suffering for the sake of something better, more beautiful, more meaningful than the story she could write for herself. And that sounds, I mean, for a lot of us, that sounds challenge like really Suff- like entering into suffering for the sake of something beyond that but we actually see this play out in lots of different ways and lots of different places one of the things i love about sports is that sports acts as theater you know sports is more than just competition it's theater where some of these these ideas these philosophies get played out on a big stage, and we all get to watch it. So we're, of course, in the middle of the NBA playoffs, and uh, we live not far from Philadelphia, and so I know many of you are thinking about the 76ers. Um, Maybe not this morning you weren't, but some of you were. Um, And, of course, this has been a really fun year to be a 76ers fan. Right. I didn't even pay him to say that, but that's what we're going to talk about. So uh, if you don't know what Matt's talking about when he shouts out, trust the process. And th- isn't it funny? Like, in our church, we don't do a lot of the, there, like, aren't amens. There aren't, you know, people aren't saying hallelujah, but people are saying trust the process. I'm not sure what that says about us. Um, but anyway, if you don't know what he's talking about, uh, a number of years ago, the general manager of the Philadelphia 76ers, a guy named Sam Hinkie, decided that in order for the 76ers to not just be kind of like a, a marginal team or a team that gets some wins but some losses, maybe never quite excels, if we're not going to be mediocre, if we're going to be great, then we're going to need to first be really, really bad. And so he went, led them through a process in which they basically jettisoned all the decent talent that they had so that they could begin to lose a lot so that they'd had opportunities for better draft picks and could build a team that might actually do something. Now, this led to a season of great suffering for, Phillies fan, for 76ers fans. Uh, there was a, about a, a three- to four-year period 
Um, that culminated in a season where I think the 76ers won 10 games the entire season. Uh, th- there are stories about people who would buy entire rows of seats in certain sections for like a dollar. It was a really, really bad time to be a basketball fan in Philadelphia. Unless you trusted the process. So this was all part of Hinky's plan, and, and as they played so horribly, it gave them opportunities to acquire draft picks. Now, in the midst of all of this suffering, Hinky himself was fired. Well, resigned-ish fired. And so he never got to kind of see the turning point. But this year, many people have looked and said, ah, this is the result of all of that suffering we endured. This is what we had hoped would come about, that by entering into that season of prolonged suffering, we'd come out the other side into this time where we actually had something better. And again, I know it's just sports. It's just sports. But it works because it's larger than sports. This willingness to enter into a season of suffering for the sake of what might come on the other end is what is what Ruth is doing. It is part of how life works. That so often we enter into periods of suffering in hope that something better might come out the other side. That something meaningful, something worthwhile will be birthed out of this period. The Apostle Paul says it this way in his letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 5, verses 4 to 5. He says, Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. At the core of the gospel message, the message of Jesus, is a call not to run away from suffering, but to trust that the one who suffered for us is able to bring life and hope even in the midst of suffering. That there is hope if we endure. It's hard not to read passages like this, or it's hard to read passages like this and not think about some of the great historical figures who compel us to hope. Right? So, so people like... Um, Malala Yousafzai, I think is how you pronounce her last name. Malala is what she's commonly known, just by her first name. The young girl who was shot at point-blank range in Pakistan because she was trying to go to school. Who has come out the other side of that and been an inspiration to girls and boys, men and women, everywhere. Because she was able to endure through suffering. Or Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who endured suffering in a Soviet gulag for over a decade, which enabled him to write down his two-volume set, the Gulag Archipelago, which later helped begin the dismantling of the Soviet Union, bringing hope to people who'd been oppressed for generations. Harriet Tubman, whose endurance through the the trials of slavery led her to be someone who led hundreds of slaves themselves to freedom, giving them hope. And of course, Nelson Mandela, who endured decades in prison, 
which produced in him the ability to lead a nation towards reconciliation. I mean, we could go on and on. Name a person whose life inspires you, and I guarantee you that they endured some degree of suffering. That they didn't avoid all suffering in their lives, but they had to go through a period of suffering, and out the other end, they came out more certain of who they were and what their role in this world was. And even if they couldn't articulate it as such, what their role in God's plan and what God was doing was. But it had to begin as they went through suffering. And of course, it's easy to talk about these big-name people and they're inspirational, but part of why it's so inspirational is because suffering is just a part of life. One of the, the things that I get the chance to do in my position is talk to lots and lots of different people. And you know what's amazing? Regardless of what your socioeconomic status, what your, what your background is, what your ethnic makeup is, whatever your, your cultural experience is, no matter what it is, there's at least one thing that all of us share. We all suffer. Maybe two things. None of us like it. But we can choose to respond kind of like Orpah. And again, I hate to throw Orpah under the bus because I would have done the same thing. But we can choose to respond like Orpah and try and figure out how do I avoid this at all costs? How do I figure out a way to navigate life where I just can avoid any kind of suffering at all? Or we can, like Ruth, ask the question of, what is the good thing? What is the good thing that I need to choose? What, what is it that God is leading me toward in this moment? Even if it leads me into the, the face of suffering. How do I choose what is good, not what is easy? And if we choose that, we might just discover that we are smack in the middle of whatever it is that God is doing in our lives. That we're right in the middle of where we ought to be. And that as we do that, as we move into doing what is good, even in the face of suffering, that God is able to bring hope, meaning, shape us in a significant way that sets us up for what it is we were made to do, who it is we were made to be. So I guess I wonder, where in your life are you experiencing suffering right now? What in your life feels like suffering? For some of you, it might be a big thing. It could be something like dealing with illness, the loss of someone that you love, marriage complications, divorce, for others, it's maybe more mundane, everyday suffering, like a job you can't stand, or maybe not having a job at the moment. Conflict in your relationships. Whatever it is. The answer is rarely trying to figure out how do you avoid the suffering, but it's, the question is, how do you choose what is good how do you move forward even into and through the suffering with hope? And if we learn to do that, I believe we'll find ourselves squarely in the midst of whatever it is that God wants to do in our lives. It's kind of like trusting the process. But instead of trusting the process, it's 
trusting the one that we think is kind of working through the process to bring good and life out the other side. So two questions to think about as we kind of move towards the end here. We're going to move into a time of Q&A. We're going to interact for just a moment, and then we're actually going to have a time of baptism this morning. But before that, two questions to throw out there to to get you thinking uh, as we head out this week. One, as you face suffering in your life, again, big suffering, little suffering, whatever it is, suffering is suffering. What is it that draws you to hope? What is it that kind of calls hope out of you? There's, it could be any number of things. For, for many of us, it's maybe reading scripture. It's looking at the, the words of Jesus or passages in scripture that, that call us to hope. That in the midst of suffering, God is at work to bring life and meaning in our lives. Maybe it's music. Maybe it's a particular, particular band that you listen to. Uh, maybe it's like a style of music. Maybe you're someone who likes to listen to worship music, or maybe you're someone who likes to listen to music that calls you to worship, though other people might not see it that way. Um, but it's music that calls you to hope. Maybe it's prayer. And if it's prayer, I, I, would, I would suggest that pra- it would be prayer in the vein of Naomi. Not prayer that says what you think you ought to say, but prayer that says how you feel. One of the things that's fascinating as we go through this book is Naomi, Naomi get, is allowed to blame God for all of this. No one shows up and, and corrects her or tells her, stop saying that, that's not the right thing. But as she shares this honestly, what she's feeling and how she's experiencing it, she continues to move forward in the story in relationship with God and others. And, and we watch that stuff get worked out. Be honest in your prayers with God about how you're doing. Naomi gives us a great example of that. Maybe what brings out hope in you is is stories, stories of hope, stories of other people who enter into suffering and through it have been shaped in powerful ways. And I would encourage you, wherever you're at, whatever suffering you're going through, to speak words of hope. One of the things that we take for granted but is really true is that our words create the worlds that we live in. The things that we say shape our realities. If you don't believe me, just try and spend a day saying nothing but negative things about yourself. Negative things about your situation. Negative things about everything that happens around you. Maybe you do that already. That might already be your... I know, I know people who do. What happens? You feel crappy about everything. On the other hand, try and speak hope. Choose consciously each day, no matter what's going on, no matter what suffering you're you're facing, to speak hopefully. Not falsely. Don't say things, you you know, like, I'm going to win a million dollars today. But to speak hope. That, okay, this stinks, but, I, but God is with me. That encounter stinks, but I know God loves that person. And I probably misunderstood that thing that I'm so angry about. And so I'm going to choose to actually think the best of that person instead of the worst and move forward. 
whatever you choose to say is going to shape the way you see your situation, the way you see yourself, the way you see your circumstances. So choose to speak words of hope. Again, the, the Apostle Paul says this in his letter to the Ephesians. He says, instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. You know, sometimes when you use that phrase, speak the truth in love, I know people who like to say it when it's talking about to other people, right? Like that means if someone is doing something bad, you should go to them. Now, you should love them, but you should tell them they're doing something bad. And that's okay. That's good. Like, that's appropriate sometimes. Um, but I also think there's a way we need to be able to speak the truth to ourselves in love about our situation. Like, what is really true about what's happening? What is really true about my experience? Is it really as bad as I think it is? Or am I actually someone who's pretty blessed? Am I actually someone who has a lot to be really grateful for? And so I'm going to speak words of hope, of gratitude, that are going to shape the way I experience this time, even this time of suffering. So whatever it is that moves you towards hope, identify that and begin to live in that, even in the midst of whatever suffering you're facing. And then finally, what is the good thing that you know you ought to do right now? Whatever it is that you're, you're going through that's difficult, I don't know how to solve it for you. I don't know what the answer to that problem is. I don't know how to fix it. But my guess is you probably know one good thing that you could do right now. One thing that reflects the character of Christ in this situation. One thing that is loving, that is compassionate, that is merciful. One thing that is true, one thing that is good. That will not fix the situation, but will move you in the right direction. Whatever that is, do it. And then once you've done that, what's the next good thing that you can do? Do that. You keep doing that every day and eventually you'll turn around and you'll go, oh my goodness. Somehow in the midst of this, God brought something beautiful out in me. Even if the situation was horrible, something beautiful came out of it. I don't know how to get there from here, but that whatever that good thing is, do it today and then do it again tomorrow. And then do it the next day. Just keep doing it. The thing you know you ought to do, do it. And I believe if we do that, we will find ourselves in the middle of whatever it is that God's doing. All right. We're going to take just a moment, and we're going to interact. We like to do this every week, give you a chance to um, ask questions you might have. Um, if there's anything that I shared that uh, you disagree with or maybe it made you think of something else that you'd like to share that about this theme, we want to invite you to do that. So we'll have someone with a microphone and if you have something you want to share or a question you want to ask stick your hand up. I think we have one in the back here, Carmen. If you don't mind, Tim, bring the lights up just a little bit. How do we or how do we not um, how do we stay away from the danger of, I guess giving somebody else a prognosis for their suffering? that, hey, this is all going to be okay, you know, God works everything together for the good of those that mm -hmm. love him, kind of that, that stereo, kind of that cliche canned speech um, that I've heard a lot. How do we say that to somebody who is going through something far worse than what we are going through or what we, you know, believe? I just, I, I've seen this happen so many times, and it really can be destructive to a person to hear, oh, everything's going to work out, it's going to be okay, this is going to be good for you someday. Yeah, um, yeah. A lot, we don't want to hear that when we're going yeah. through really tough stuff. 
Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and I think I would, I guess my initial thing is don't try to tell anybody else how they ought to feel. Um, I, and that's, we look at Naomi again. She, the scriptures do nothing about the fact that she's saying all of this is God's fault. God has made me bitter. God has dealt me a, a, a bad hand. Nobody comes alongside and says, but she was actually like, okay, Naomi, you can't really say that. Um, that's just, she was allowed to express those things in the context of the scriptures. And I think we need to do the work of ourselves choosing into hope and modeling Jesus' presence with us in the midst of suffering as a loving, compassionate presence. That invites people to hope. Um, and so, yeah, I, I guess I'd say largely we need to learn to be with people in suffering and not tell them what they ought to think about suffering. Um, but we could probably talk a lot more about that. That's a good question. Other thoughts, questions? No? Okay. All right. Well, if you uh, have any further questions or thoughts you want to interact around that, you can grab me afterwards. I'll be standing in the back. But we want to take some time this morning to, uh, to baptize Lily Durr. Um, now, the reason we do baptism, baptism is a, a big deal for us. We, we see baptism as a very symbolic act. It shows the transformation that happens in us as we put our trust in Christ. The, the cleansing from sin, the life that comes from death, this, all of this is symbolized in this act of baptism. And so we're excited this morning to baptize Liliana Durr. And she's going to come forward with her parents. And as she does, her grandmother is going to read us a little bit of her story. <laughs> 